This is the Green Street News. Doug and Patty Wood, welcome back. The debate over fracking for natural gas has divided communities, neighbors, and families. It's become a hot political issue, with most Republicans favoring it and most Democrats opposing it. Climate change experts point out we need to stop burning fossil fuels, while supporters point to jobs and badly needed economic activity in rural areas. New York State has banned fracking, but right next door, Pennsylvania encourages it. Ohio and West Virginia allow fracking, and the massive pipelines that carry the natural gas extend through the Mid-Atlantic states and up into New England to distribution ports where giant tankers are loaded to carry the gas overseas. The competing forces of economic interests on the one hand and climate change concerns on the other have resulted in kind of a stalemate. Fracking continues today, but so do the efforts to shut down pipelines and prohibit more exploration. So what if there was another issue, one that's not really well known, that would tip the scales one way or the other? What if there was an issue everyone could understand and that was an undeniable threat to our safety and security? That story and the other environmental news this week, coming right up. Stay with us. Okay, so what do you got for this week from the Green Street News Department? I've got two articles about loopholes. One of my, one of my favorite things to talk about. So the first one is from The Guardian, and the title is U.S. Firms Exploiting Trump-Era Loophole Over Toxic Forever Chemicals. So here we go. Chemical companies are dodging a federal law designed to track how many PFAS forever chemicals their plants are discharging into the environment by exploiting a loophole created in the Trump administration's final months. The Trump EPA gave PFAS an unusual exemption under the law that allows companies not to report discharges if the amounts are negligible, which is defined as less than 1% of a total mixture. Companies are adding water to PFAS to dilute it to the point that it is below 1%. However, the total amount of PFAS released is still high and may present a threat once it is in the environment. So they're just diluting what they put out in order to get yeah. under the, the 1% limit. Well, yeah, that's where they are, but they're also doing this. So they also use complex mixtures with multiple PFOS. And if the companies keep any one PFOS compound below the 1% threshold, then they won't have to report it, even if the total amount of all PFOS compounds in the mixture far exceeds that 1%. Wow. It's crazy. I mean, the reason for the for the law in the first place is that so communities that are downstream from these toxic, you know, chemical facilities know what's in their water because PFAS, you know, contamination in our water is just widespread across the across the country. Yeah. But if you have companies that are avoiding reporting it, then that undermines the entire purpose of the law. Sure. So nobody knows yeah. what's in the water, yeah. and and they get away with putting out the same amount, uh, same actual amount of PFAS, yeah. but just adding water to it. Yeah, so they're that... playing. They're playing games, and, and you know this was. This was brought to the attention of the EPA, and an EPA spokesperson said that the agency is aware of the loophole and has begun the process to potentially close it. Potentially close it. Potentially close it. Well, I suppose that's better than not closing it, but... 
So, I mean, you know, PFAS is a, is a huge class of chemicals. We had, you know, Dr. Linda Birnbaum on our show not too long ago, uh, former head of NIEHS at the National Institutes of Health. And, you know, she said this is about 12,000 chemicals that make up this class. And they make thousands of products that are resistant to water and stain and heat and whatever. I mean, from our pans that we use to, you know, to tampons that women use to toilet paper that everybody uses, to clothing that is, you know, water resistant and so on. It's crazy. It's crazy the amount of PFAS that we are exposed to in a, in a typical day. So what can people do to avoid PFAS? Well, this is, a, this is a huge problem. So there are a lot of organizations that are beginning to try to put together lists of products that are free from PFAS. And so they're testing for fluorine, which is an indicator. You, you have to use fluorine in all PFAS products. Okay. Okay, so, so that's what they're doing. They're, they're testing for fluorine and they're finding it. And sometimes it's not intentionally added. It's just in, you know, a component yeah. of that product that yeah. you're buying. I mean, you wouldn't put PFAS in tampons, right? Or you wouldn't put PFAS in a in a child's winter jacket. Uh-huh. So do we avoid all things that are, you know, stain proof and, you know, and water resistant? You do try very hard to avoid those kinds of things. I mean, if you buy wool, you're pretty much safe. So if you buy a wool jacket or a boiled wool jacket, you know, they're expensive, they're pricey, but you can find them in, you know, used clothing stores and yeah. so on. And it's worth it to to find something that your child wears every single day or yeah. something that you might use every single day yeah. that is free from PFOS chemicals. This is a big one. The yeah. PFOS is, is the new DDT. Of course, D- DDT wasn't in every product that we use in our homes, but PFOS is. Okay. And it's more persistent. It's actually more persistent in the environment. That's why it's called a forever chemical, because it does not break down. Okay. What else? All right. So that was one loophole story. Here's my other loophole story, which is a loophole that is allowing pesticide-coated seeds in our agricultural industry, right? So pesticides kill about 100 million birds every year, just in the U.S. Wow. And a federal loophole is ensuring that this crisis is going to continue. So here we go. Chemicals may drift away from farms and land on bird skin and feathers. They might seep into the soil and water where they kill insects and invertebrates that birds eat. And then sometimes birds directly ingest them when the pesticide is a granule or a coating on a seed. But birds are far from the only victims of these insecticides, which are called neonicotinoids or neonics for short. Every year, millions of pounds of neonics are applied to crop seeds, which can be eaten by birds and other wildlife. And due to a gaping loophole in federal law, these deadly seeds receive almost no regulatory oversight. The EPA keeps such seeds classified as quote-unquote treated articles. This exempts coated seeds from the regulations and oversight mandated in the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which covers everything from pesticide label requirements to funds for victims of pesticide poisoning, 
all of which are not required for seeds covered or coated in deadly chemicals. So if they called them seeds, they wouldn't be allowed to do this, but if they call them articles, they're allowed to do it? It seems like that's what they're, that's what they're doing. Okay, this is crazy. This no is just kidding. this is crazy because you know seed coatings are the main use of these neurotoxic pesticides mm -hmm. and most of the pesticide as much as 97% of it leaves the seed and blankets surrounding areas as bee killing dust or it leaches into the local ecosystem when you say leakage leaches into the ecosystem you're talking about water, water and soil yeah. right water yeah. and soil contamination and once in the soil it you know and water it, it kills insects and aquatic invertebrates and it deprives birds of really important food sources it, without a change in this loophole it is impossible to enforce the endangered species act and other wildlife saving laws you can't do it without without changing this loophole for all the harm that they cause to pollinators which are critical yeah. right and to our songbirds which we all love to watch at and our here. bird feeders, right? Okay. Many studies on the soybeans and the corn that are grown with these coated seeds show an insignificant or a non-existent increase in the number of crops grown. In other words, they're using these for insecticide purposes, but doesn't do any it's good. Not, percentage wise you're not it's not doing any good. So, but even that, I mean, farmers who do not want to use these seeds are given really almost no choice. Yeah. Most corn and soybean seeds come pre-treated and farmers have to special order untreated seeds or uncoated seeds. So let me just get this straight. You have to special order seeds without pesticides on Correct. Them. If you're a farmer, you have to special order untreated seeds. Okay, is anybody considering closing this loophole or not? This is the final sentence in this article by Hardy Kern is this. Changing the special status of coated seeds is long overdue for wildlife conservation. We are facing a catastrophic loss of birds in North America. There are nearly 3 billion fewer birds than in 1970. That's 3 billion with a B. Yeah. I mean, there, birds are a critical part of our ecosystem. People don't get that. People are not connected to the ecosystem that they live in, that they are part of. People don't think of themselves as part of nature. It's time that we get off our high horse and understand that we are making a mess of our environment. And that mess is also impacting our health, for sure. Okay. Here's a quick piece that was written by Peter Dykstra in Environmental Health News before Election Day. Um, and he says that there's no doubt that there's plenty for House and Senate candidates to talk about inflation, gasoline prices, Putin and Ukraine, Z and China, race and crime, guns, education, immigration, and more. But all of these issues have crowded out, once again, the only issue that's certain to be with us 30, 50, or even 100 years from now, and that's climate change and the environment. That's if we last 100 years. You know, if we're still here in 100 years, we're going to have that problem. But at the rate we're going, who knows? It's amazing. I mean, in Florida, you know, you still have people like Rick Scott, who is now the junior senator, uh, and he has actually barred state employees from mentioning climate change. Can't even say it. It's the existential issue of our time. It is the existential issue of our time. And, 
you know, what happened in Florida and, you know, what's happening with the Mississippi River right now, right? So that it is the driest the river Mm -hmm. has ever been. Why isn't this a major issue? Yeah. The ideologies of environment and commerce agree so completely, right? Climate change has screwed both the river and its barge traffic with national impact. But who's talking about it? And how about 10th anniversary of Superstorm Sandy? And how about what just happened in Florida? Yeah. I mean, we took apart these barrier islands where people have been living and millions of people have been vacationing on for a long time. And And is it wise to to build them back up? I don't think so. They're barrier islands. They're going to get hit again. They're going to get slammed. You think the hurricane season is over? And I don't mean just for this year. I mean, no. I mean, these these hurricanes are going to be stronger and stronger and stronger and be more and more destructive than they have in the past. But that's it. You know, climate-linked disasters have been outshouted in campaigns Mm -hmm. for a long time, and they continue to be. Yeah, because there's no enemy. (laughs) It's easier to make people afraid and make people mad about immigration or something else than it is to to address climate change because there are no easy answers, right? It's going to be expensive. It's going to take time. We have to have a national commitment. And it's just not something that the American public has the attention span for. The politicians want to make sure that there's an enemy out there, whether it's Democrats or it's immigrants or it's people that have another religion or people who love a different way. Those are the enemies. And that's what drives people. That's what's driving political discourse right now. It's not serious issues that are going to take a while to solve. It's issues where there's an easy answer, where there's a black and white, but there are no easy answers and it's not black and white. And that's the world we live in. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Americans use a lot of energy. We drive a lot. We like to keep our houses nice and warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We have giant TVs and other appliances that eat energy. And we've got lots of electronic devices that by themselves may only use a little bit, but when you add them all up, it's a lot. So our appetite for energy just keeps growing. A lot of people have solar panels on their homes or apartment buildings, so that helps. There are giant windmills in places where the wind blows a lot and they produce energy, but it's not enough to feed the insatiable appetite of the American public. And so when engineers at the Halliburton Company discovered a way to unlock the tiny bubbles of natural gas that have been trapped deep down underground for millions of years, it caused quite a sensation. We have enough natural gas underground to last us a hundred years, said one excited executive. But there was a problem. When you frack a well for oil or gas, a lot more than just the oil or gas comes up from deep underground. We have this idea that, you know, oil and gas, and there's a wellhead, and some sort of pipeline system, and maybe a refinery or two, and then, you know, fuel for our cars, fuel for our homes. But there's an incredible amount of waste that comes up at an oil and gas well, and one of the primary streams of waste is this toxic, salty liquid that the industry calls brine, or produced water. That's Justin Noble, a freelance journalist who's been looking at the environmental impacts of fracking for a few years now. His Rolling Stone article, published back in 2020, and his forthcoming book, Petroleum 238, Big Oil's Dangerous Secret and the Grassroots Fight to Stop It, 
are both about the deep, dark secret that oil and gas companies are hoping they can keep quiet. It all has to do with where oil and gas come from in the first place. So imagine a shallow marine environment like, say, the Gulf of Mexico right now. You have a lot of dead organic material falling to the bottom of the sea. So things like, you know, dead algae, small little living organisms die, fall to the bottom, and you have this rich organic layer building up at the bottom. That literally will become your future oil and gas, and, and it will be compacted into a layer that's called a black shale. And also accumulating on the bottom of the sea in the same layer where you have your future oil and gas is going to be uranium-238 and thorium-232, these two long-lived radioactive isotopes. Uranium-238 and thorium-232, two radioactive elements that are not uncommon in the natural world. They're cooked in from the beginning. There's no argument about, well, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. It's there, and not only is it there, we know for a fact it's there because the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, on request from the Atomic Energy Commission, looked at black shales in the early 1960s to determine if there was enough uranium to mine them. It's just so amazing. They weren't even interested in the oil. They were looking at the uranium. Uranium is the top of the radioactive decay chain, and uranium won't necessarily flow with water. So you will be getting some uranium up at the brine, but really not that much. But radium, uranium will go through a series of decays, and one of the radioactive elements in that decay chain is radium. Uh, and, and when I say decay, a radioactive element, it's just it's an unstable element. So at some point, it will literally blast off pieces of itself, and those pieces we call radiation, and then it will become another element. It's just it's lost a piece of itself. It's literally now something else. So uranium will decay to an isotope of thorium, will decay on, and eventually you have uh, radium-226. And unlike some of these other radioactive elements, radium will flow with water. So radium will come up in significant amounts in the brine. And so this is the first stream of oil and gas waste. We have radium coming up in the brine. This is often put into a brine truck, and this is often taken either to an injection well or a treatment plant. Radium-226 is a radioactive isotope with a half-life of 1,600 years. It was discovered back in 1898 by Pierre and Marie Curie while they were conducting research with uranium ore. Radium-226 is nothing to fool around with. It's a known cancer-causing substance. Exposure to high levels of radium can lead to increased risks of bone, liver, and breast cancer. The drivers of the brine trucks have a risk. Um, folks at the injection well potentially have a risk. And then a treatment plant is really an uh, industry's disastrous way to try and recycle this. But these workers are not protected either. And they're essentially stirring around vats of radioactive waste, thinking that they're handling something innocent. They're not. They have virtually no protection. No human being likes to be deceived, right? And the workers who have come out to me it's been extraordinary. They're coming out and saying, this is what we've suspected all along. We've been worried. Thank you for giving us information. They go to their employers. They're told it's not an issue. Some workers, um, I've heard, have been fired just for asking about radioactivity. Apparently, if you get a Geiger counter so you can test yourself, you're let go. I had another uh, a driver just recently got in touch. A lot of these drivers have symptoms, such as odd swellings that will appear on different parts of their body, these burning rashes that jump around, joint pain, numbness. 
So this one driver had these, his hands were so swollen he couldn't grip the steering wheel of his truck anymore. And he told his employer that, and literally that same day he was let go. Um, so the industry, you know, they're trying to cover this up, but when you look at the human detail of what it means to cover this up, it, it means that you're going to hire a guy who, you know, isn't necessarily desperate for a job, but needs a job, and here's a job that pays well. So, and there aren't that many other jobs in some of these areas. So they take this job, they're excited about it um, because suddenly they've got money coming in, they can provide for their family, but they have been deceived. They've been told they're hauling water or salt water when they're hauling this complex radioactive mixture. So the toxic radioactive brine that comes up with the gas from fracking wells is being carted away to water treatment plants by drivers who have no idea what is in the giant tank right behind them. But brine isn't the only thing that comes up out of a fracked well. Drill cuttings are of concern because with fracking, remember, we're drilling down vertically, but we're also drilling horizontally. And so with fracking, we are drilling horizontally through this black shale layer that, again, the USGS knew in 1960 was radioactive. So if you're drilling horizontally through a radioactive layer, all of your drill cuttings you're going to bring up are going to have a radioactive signature as well. And now we're actually bringing up the rock itself, so we are bringing up the uranium. So we're going right to the top of the decay chain. All of the drill cuttings are being piled up in in local landfills in New York, in the southern tier, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, and West Virginia. So those are two devastating pathways. A landfill gets rained on, the rain runs through a landfill, and a landfill produces something called leachate. Some of these landfills accepting drill cuttings in Pennsylvania, they've received about uh, 100,000 tons of solid oil and gas waste, drill cuttings, and other sludges a year. And that's an extraordinary amount. And no one has went through and trying to assess the numbers of how much radioactivity that is and what it means for the leachate streams. The leachate streams have been collecting radium. Again, radium is water-soluble. Uranium will decay on into your radium eventually. And then the leachate will go to a sewage treatment plant. The sewage treatment plant does not have the ability to take out the radioactivity, and the sewage treatment plant will discharge into a local waterway such as in Pennsylvania, the Monongahela River, which flows through downtown Pittsburgh, such as local creeks and and streams where people fish. So that's two potential pathways or avenues through which a toxic substance can find its way to humans. But there's a third pathway as well. There will actually be radioactivity in the natural gas pipelines and in the natural gas liquid pipelines. And right now these pipelines are being dragged out of the Marcellus and dragged through New York and, and intentionally dragged to places like New York. Um, And so how that happens, one more quick lesson here on the radioactivity. Uh, We have radium at the wellhead. Radium is continuing its radioactive decay, and the primary isotope of radium in oil and gas waste is radium-226. That will decay to radon-222, and radon is a radioactive gas. Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer death in the United States. Uh, Radon is something that's so concerning that the EPA has set the safe limit for your home at four. Picocuries per liter is you do not want any more radon than four. A picocurie is how we measure the radioactive decay of radon. The EPA has set a safe level at four. And yet we have radon in natural gas pipelines from the industry's own documents at levels that are upwards of 10,000 picocuries per liter. 
uh, and then radon continues through its radioactive decay, and it will eventually become lead-210. That's a radioactive isotope of lead. And polonium-210, polonium is a devastatingly toxic radioactive element. Uh, and this is what's accumulating. This is in industry's own report. Naturally, inevitably accumulating in natural gas pipelines will be the daughter products of radon. So where are our government agencies? Who is monitoring all this highly dangerous waste that's being produced by the oil and gas industry? In the late 1970s, the U.S. Uh, was trying to clean up its act, trying to clean up its industry, and had this uh, really good idea. We're going to produce hazardous waste as a nation, but we are going to appropriately label it as hazardous. We're going to appropriately uh, put it into a truck that can handle hazardous waste, driven by a driver who's appropriately trained to handle hazardous waste, and it's going to end up in a disposal facility that's appropriately designed to handle hazardous waste. So cradle the grave designation of hazardous waste, but the oil and gas industry received a stunning exemption from that. So all these oil and gas waste streams we've been talking about, brine, drill cuttings, different scales and sludges, despite having known very hazardous properties, have been labeled as non-hazardous. So a truck that's carrying brine, which is toxic radioactive waste, it can just have a tiny little lettering that says brine. We have such a Stone Age way of looking at public health risks, of looking at environmental risks, of looking at toxicology, that it's easy for us right now with our poor sensors to, to look across and say, oh, it's oil and gas is fine, it's, it's creating great jobs, it's creating income. We aren't fully analyzing all of the extraordinary array of risks that are there when it comes to all the different waste brought to the surface. The markets are not taking into account public health costs, and they're not taking into account environmental destruction, and that's, uh, that's a major problem. This is something um, that we have science that we can take to. You know, our, when a brine truck spills on a road in upstate uh, Pennsylvania um, or Ohio or rural West Virginia, uh, what happens there? What happens when a farmer's field gets, um, you know, covered with oil and gas waste that has a known radium signature? How worrisome is that? How worrisome is it to put oil field brine with radium on your steps? Um, time and again, uh, it's legal in Ohio. Uh, and also in New York, actually, to spread oil field brine on roads in an effort to keep down uh, snow and ice. These things we can examine, we're not, and it's part of a greater trend of just paying attention to the pieces of science we want, but ignoring the general principles of science and the history, and the science is there on this. We understand it, and yet it has not been applied in the sphere of the oil and gas industry. And with the workers, in Louisiana, there were these legal cases, workers who developed various types of cancers. They were working common industry jobs, roughneck, roustabout, pipe cleaner, truck driver hauling sludge. They developed cancers, and their cancers were linked indisputably to radioactivity exposure on the job. If we had paid attention to the waste issue, I don't think we ever would have gotten to climate change because we would have recognized that this industry 
produced an extraordinary amount of toxic waste. Uh, sure, we use these products. They have qualifications that make them very interesting as, as resources, but they would have been priced in a very different way. And certainly, as you know already, renewables would have probably eclipsed them long ago. And I think that's the significant thing here, is that the cost of oil and gas waste are extraordinary. Justin Noble is a freelance journalist who has been studying the environmental impacts of fracking. His Rolling Stone article, published back in 2020, is available online, and his forthcoming book, Petroleum 238, Big Oil's Dangerous Secret and the Grassroots Fight to Stop It, will be published soon. You can find links to more information about fracking and its potential impact on human health on the Green Street News website. That's greenstreetnews.org. Just click on this week's show. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.